0: Welcome back to On Stage, Off Stage. I am George Sapio, and this week we are talking with world-renowned playwright Craig Pospisil. He is the author of the play's Months on End, Somewhere in Between the Dunes, Life is Short, and the collection Choosing Sides, and this is just to name but a few of his works. He is a six-time Heidemann Award finalist has received the Kennedy Center American College Theater Festivals Award for Excellence in Playwriting. His plays have been translated into more languages than I can list here and produced in more countries than this show can actually fit into its time slot. He is a frequent featured artist at the Last Frontier Theater Conference, and we will get to discuss in that too, and an editor of several monologue and short play collections. We began our conversation with Craig by discussing his current project, adapting part of his play Months on End, to video is this the first time you've tried to turn one of your pieces into video?
1: It is yes um, and uh with months on end, the play it was kind of something i'd thought of before because um I'd written the play so it could be done it's got a large cast by today's standards it's got 10 uh, ten ten characters, and it really the, as it as I was writing it it really needed those ten but I wanted always wanted the um, the staging of it to be fairly spare right uh, because there are 12 scenes one for each month of the year and so I didn't want it to get bogged down but there was always in my mind you know uh, a larger kind of life going on beyond what we could see on the on the stage and this is also it's a, a look at these these 10 people in, in different combinations and different scenes over the course of this year. So there's, you know, a couple of important characters who are referred to who we never see. Um, uh, the, the the opening scene, the January scene, for instance, takes place at a New Year's Eve party, Um Okay. Know, uh, you know, we're at a party that's full of people. It focuses really just on these two characters who are, are, are kind of at the heart of the, the full length on Months on End. Um, and, and so the rest of the party, they've kind of stepped aside from it. Um, but in, the, in, in translating this to film, of course, um, not only can you see them, but you want them, you know that party to be right. filled up a little more to get a sense of it and at the end of it there is a moment when um, very specifically the two characters of Elaine and Walter are referring to their significant others elsewhere right. um, so it'll be very different experience you know
0: without in, without in, giving in anything
1: Ruby to actually see see these other people
0: right without, without giving anything of the plot away which I really I, I don't want to do um we're already talking about a, a, a change of, of medium here. You know, it's, you put two characters on stage, you give them glasses, and you say right. you're, you're at a party, right? And you know, any any good actor worth his or her, you know, salt will pretend that they are at a party, and they will make you believe that they are at a party. Right now, you're filling in the background with the visual and. Mm-hmm does that actually change anything within the play? Has it caused you to rethink the actual text itself in order to accommodate for the mandatory visual? I mean, have you done any rewriting to accommodate for that?
1: I, I did. I mean, fortunately, um, you know, month on end is about 10, 12 years old. So I was able to, uh, you know, have some distance on it. So I wasn't, uh, you know, precious about every line or every sure yeah. in, the, in the script when I, when I um, came to adapting it. And so that was great. That would be, that was, you know, freeing. Um, and there were definitely lines in the script that as I started working on it, uh, you know, in adapting it, uh, that I realized, oh, you know, this is a line, you know, that, tells how this character feels so that, you know, the people at the back of the house who can't see this actress's, you know, expression is clearly will we'll know what's, what's going on. Exactly, I, yeah. You know, yeah. got a camera and I'm in close on her, you know, we'll see her eyes, you know, kind of welling up with tears or we'll see the him roll his eyes at something she said, and they don't have to then comment on it. Those were the sorts of things that I was able to, to streamline in, in changing it from the stage to the screen. I'm wondering
0: about that because it seems almost like they're expository lines is, is kind of what you're referring to at this particular point. So you cut those. They, because they can,
1: aren't you... on stage, but they, be, they become that way in film.
0: Okay, gotcha. Just because
1: of just because of how close you can get to it, they, I realize that there there are verbal hints to to some of the, the characters' reactions that can be done with you know a raised eyebrow. In exactly. The yeah, it's 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 the difference
0: between film you act with your face and theater you act with your whole body. Exactly, and it's exactly. very it's very specific. Has the video aspect of this caused you to augment or create extra uh, because of what people can actually see? I mean, other than adjusting lines, have you?
1: There have been um, a couple of of, uh, of ideas, mostly you know, a lot of it uh, caused by the location that we found. Okay. Um, so I was you know lucky to. Um, I mean, I'd done a draft of this um, a year or so ago. My uh, my my manager was very keen on me uh, adapting something of mine um, for film, right? And um, so he he'd been pushing me to work on a, a short film script, and we talked about it. And January seemed like the good one to do because it. it stands very well on its own and it's the introduction to the whole play um so i had done a version of it and then this summer um when we were gearing up looking for you know putting it doing the pre-production work work um i got a location and the setup of the house and you know for instance it's got a, a grand piano or in it. Right. Um, and so that led to some like, oh, well, you know, we can have these moments, you know, I'm not sure I would say whole new plot points necessarily. Um, but
0: it's minor augmentations.
1: Yeah, it certainly yeah. helped in kind of creating uh, uh, more specifics for the world than I might have uh, put in you know w- that I hadn't put in, obviously, without you know, right. you know like this, this, the act- the
0: actuality of this play. Yeah. Well, one of the, one of the things I remember people telling me as I was an early writer, and I've always been a movie head. So when I started writing plays, I started writing with a movie head, and I wasn't really thinking about a lot of things that are now standard for me, which is if it's not on the stage, don't use it. Right. Um, and it sounds like okay. You just mentioned your grand piano. So this becomes another part of, shall we say, the text, the story, that sort of thing. It
1: um, becomes the fabric of the whole, the whole background, and and yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, do you find y- yourself thinking, you know, what can I have in the video? What can't I have in the video? The stuff that can be seen is as has. The set pieces become more important now that. They're actually on film.
1: It, it, it certainly changes some of the some of the um, some of the dynamic between these two characters. Yeah. Um. A just ha- you know again literally having the the other people at the party either be in the background or now in a couple of moments that you know that they actually interact with and speak sure. to. So so there's that. Um, also, on the stage, it basically takes place in one location there right. know, as I said they're to the side of the party but i can't re- you can't do that for a film it has to it has to move we have to you know have some different visuals so now we kind of you know we're, some of these scenes are, are taking place at different uh, different locations within this this apartment that it's in and so it it changes um in terms of like okay well now they're they're in you know the kitchen and it's a typically smaller narrow or new york kitchen so it actually kind of brings these two characters much closer together as people who are just meeting for the first time than than you might normally have it's a different sense um, of
0: claustrophobia
1: exactly and it and it so it 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 helps to um to, you know, to give that different, that different sh- shift in tone sure. um, that you wouldn't necessarily have on the stage. And I was able to match, for instance, shooting in this kitchen to the point in the text where it will make the most sense to kind of push them together a little uncomfortably as, as certain hidden pain bubbles out. Like, sure. okay, well, let's, this goes into the kitchen then because that proximity, literal is going to be part of the cause for this, as well as just whatever they're talking you
0: mentioned earlier um that the cast is you said large by today's standards and that is a it's a tech thing that i've been wrestling with for a while i've written a couple of large cast plays and i know other people have written you know there's a lot of large cast plays out there but they they don't, from what I've been told, they don't stand an equal chance of getting produced because of a difficulty of casting, paying actors, all that sort of thing. They're much more expensive to produce. So mm-hmm. I and a lot of other writers have been, uh, you know, paring our cast down to the bare minimum. Um, right. Has this been affecting your writing over the past few years? Has uh, Have you started writing smaller or do you just write whatever comes?
1: I write what the story ends up requiring, Okay. Um, but I, I use it as, I use uh, my knowledge of, you know, the whole business side of being a playwright. I mean, I know what some of the market forces are. I know, I say large by today's standards in regards to the cast for months on end, because for professional theater companies and some of the smaller regional ones to have pay 10 actors is enormously high. So I tend to use what I know about the economics of today's theaters as a a tool, a crafting, editing tool that I use when I'm looking at what I've written or what I'm considering uh, for a new play. Um, And so it becomes a kind of a, a test, you know, do I really need this new character? Or do I have, can this character also be doubled with somebody else? If I decide, as I did with Months on End, that, like, no, this, this is what this particular story is. And, and these characters can't double because they do come back and in a way that would make it impossible for them to be playing multiple parts. I don't let the market forces dictate what I write. Sure. Um, but it, I do use it as a kind of a double checking on myself, knowing that if I have 10 characters, I'm, I'm probably going to be limiting some of the play's uh, options. I've also at certain points decided I, I have another play that I've put to the side for a little bit because uh, I started the new one and because I felt I needed a little more time for it to kind of work Around in my head that I'm specifically trying to keep to just four characters, and and you know and and really aim at something a little smaller cast wise The the new one is more flexible, kind of an ensemble cast where people will play multiple parts. So it's probably coming in at like six or seven actors at yeah. this
0: point. It's great for actors to play different. You know, I'm, I'm, yeah, i
1: you Yeah, know. I think you know they tend to like it, and it and if it's the flexibility also. <laughs> Allows a professional theater company to cast the bare minimum, but it lets a high school or college or community theater, if they have lots of people available, yeah. they don't have to pay, that they, you know, a high school can dole out each of these parts to individual people and different people, and so they can expand the cast. Absolutely, and, yeah. And give each student, you know, something to do or maybe introduce a new student in a very small role. That's, that's, and I that's, like giving them that flexibility too.
0: If, if oh, it's possible. nice when you have a large, uh, you know, array or, or sample group to, to choose from. A lot of people do have trouble casting as, as far as professional theaters go because of, again, you know, again, the cost. But it's amazing how some places just don't have those specific actors to fill those particular parts. Yeah, and they think, you know, well, who can we get for this? Should we rely on auditions? Who have we seen over the past couple of years? You know, and you run through your brain trying to think of who's out there. And that has a large impact on what plays get selected for whichever season's
1: a lot of theater companies are choosing based on what they know their company is or their talent pool. Exactly. And, you know, they may say, we love this play. You know, they may come to me as, with, here's my we, me with my DPS hat on. We love this play. We'd love to do it. But we know we can't find an actor who's this tall or, you know, something like that.
0: Exactly. Age-specific. Uh, Age you know, yeah. Yeah. You know, Whatever, race yeah. and
1: ethnicity mm-hmm. play a factor in certain parts of the country. Sure.
0: So you're directing this.
1: this I be, am.
0: Have Have you directed your own work before?
1: I have directed some some of my uh, short plays for the stage. Yes, I hadn't done it for film before, so this will be this will be the big the big challenge for for this. Um, for this project for doing January as a film.
0: Okay, let me ask you this then. Um, Some playwrights love directing their own work. Other playwrights believe they should never direct their own work. (laughs) Uh, Where do you stand on this? Obviously, you have directed some of your own, but I mean, overall.
1: I have directed some of my own, and it's hard when you're too close to it, I think. Sure. Because the play, the month on end, is from 10, 12 years ago, I felt... I felt very much when I came to writing the, the the screen version that I had some distance on it, that I could be a little more critical. And when I was making the the shift to the screen, that what could go, what could stay. So I I feel like at this point I have I have a distance on it, and transform transforming it into a different medium it gives me a little extra distance on top of that 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 I can approach it. Not so much as the writer, but as kind of the overall creator author of the the screen version, you know i'm working with some actors that i that I know and trust very well too I, I think it will be great uh, to do with people whose abilities i'm pretty comfortable with, with. yeah'm comfortable with them in fact the, the the woman darcy Siciliano, who's who's playing the female lead had been in the earliest Production of uh, a very early version of *Months on End*, where she played a much younger character,
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> who was uh, who was uh, had
1: a monologue of a of a college graduation that goes awry Um, and so she has now graduated to an older character uh, which we've kind of talked about and laughed about you know but she's somebody who I would work with her anytime every time if I could having her on board makes, especially uh, makes me very comfortable in trying something new
0: kickstarter you're doing mm-hmm. a Kickstarter thing for this, and I yes. know from personal crowdfunding, I was a babe in the wilderness. Um, had you done this before? How's it going? What have you learned about this?
1: I, ha- I had not done it before, um, so there's you know there's definitely been an, an education and a learning curve. And did you I get definitely... help from pre- people who've done it before? What to do? What not to do? I mean, I had. Um i didn 't know a lot of people who'd tried it themselves, actually, so you know i i had I had funded a couple of projects previously you know made a couple of mistakes i mean i've always been planning to uh, put uh, a fair amount of the budget up myself anyway, but I wanted to raise as much from from uh, friends, colleagues anyone who was interested as as possible, of course, so you know may have uh Set the initial amount a little too high. How so, much are you asking for? Uh, we're trying to raise fifteen thousand.
0: And so how we're much at
1: about eleven now?
0: Hey, do you have time left on this?
1: Yeah, I've got uh, got about a week left on it. Okay, so yeah. I think we'll we'll get there.
0: Why did you go with Kickstarter? I mean, there's Indiegogo out there. There's uh, GoFundMe. There yeah, are a couple of different ones. There out are there. there
1: are different ones, and you know, and they have different policies in terms of their commission take is. Or uh, you know, I know that Indiegogo, you basically you keep the money even if you don't reach your your goal. Kickstarter only. Uh, Get the money if you reach the goal. I guess I went Kickstarter because I thought that it had the the bigger name brand recognition, and so gotcha. that, uh, yeah. uh, people might feel more comfortable. Or the idea that um, that you had to reach a goal to make the project viable might make people feel more comfortable in terms of okay, this is actually going to happen, as opposed to if I were, if somebody were raising money on Indiegogo and they set a. a, a Fifteen twenty thousand dollar budget, and and only came up to ten. Well, you've kind of given the money. Is it actually going to happen or not? So those were kind of the reasons that I, I, I went with the Kickstarter. Sure. Yeah. Well, we
0: went with uh, Indiegogo last uh, this year for the Ithaca Fringe Festival, uh, specifically because we were worried about that whole Kickstarter um, thing, where you have to make your goal. Right. And never having done it before, I tend to err on the side of caution. So we went, within, we went with Indiegogo. We pay the fees, blah, 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 blah. We do that. Um, we did not make our goal. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the reasons I asked you this question was, A, maybe I could learn a magical secret from you how to make these things happen. Um, <laughs> or <laughs> – I love that laugh. Um Or just just to see, you know, what what your reasoning and choice were, because there are a lot of self-producers out there. If you're in theater, you are a self-producer most of the time. And you've got to pay people. You've got to buy costumes. You've got to rent things. You you know, this is money down down the endless bucket of doom, you know, just just to
1: (laughs) – Stuff. Wow. <laughs> the Endless Bucket of Doom. Now, there's a good title.
0: I just It's mine. I just made it up. Don't steal it. You got uh, it. It's uh, all yours.
1: I won't touch it. <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes it's how it
0: feels because it's... Oh,
1: absolutely. Yeah. And,
0: I was looking through your resume and your website, and there's something I did not know about you. It was the A-Train Plays. Mm-hmm. which uh, I grew up in New York. I've ridden the A train countless times. You name it, that train. I I've, I've ridden it. I used to do when I was back when I was writing novels, I would do my extra writing and and editing on the train.
1: Yeah.
0: For some weird reason, it was the perfect milieu for me to actually focus on the work. But tell us what tell us okay, what's going on with the trains?
1: Well, it started about um in 2002 originally, um a a friend of mine uh, an actor named Larry Feeney, um, came up with this idea he'd been he'd been on the train early in the morning as he would say early in the morning uh, on his way to uh film a scene for the sopranos at the silver cup studios in queens mm-hmm. and uh he was marveling at the fact that he was on the train at four in the morning and not going home drunk um, but that he was on his way to work and he was kind of looking at the other people on the train and kind of thinking like, you know what are these people's stories? Why are they out here at this you know time of day and um and so he had the he started to put this idea together of you know there are stories you know you know that take that we pass by every day that take place, you know, here in a public space that we don't always see or know about. And so he came to me and another writer, David Reedy, um, to talk about this idea of uh, setting plays on the train, um, also writing them on the train. And um, the A is the longest ride in the city.
0: Is it really? I didn't know that.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is. It's, it takes about um, about two hours, um, a little less, um, and it goes from 207th Street at the top of Manhattan out right. to Far Rockaway in Queens past Kennedy, and it is the longest line in the city, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so he uh, approached uh, Dave and myself and... Uh, um, Uh, Another actor and fantastic set designer, um, Drew Donovan, who we all knew, and uh, Michael Pemberton, who was a a singer-songwriter as well as an actor who'd written a song called uh, The um, The A-Train, I think. Take the A-Train? I've forgotten part of the title. Anyway, he had a song about that was very similar in terms he's talking about, you know, being on the train and, right. and and seeing people and 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 kind of commenting on their stories. And so together we all kind of formed this idea in which we would have a company of actors um and we would get six writers to meet at 207th Street at the top of Manhattan and we'd pull a number at random from a hat and that would be the number of characters we would have in our play and then we would pull, you know, say you pull a two or a three, you'd pull that many headshots at random from a bag and those would be the people you would write for and then you would get on the train and, and ride all the way out to Far Rockaway and you had that time to write a short play um, set on the train, and then we would meet directors out there, and we would be paired up but you know randomly come back into town to uh, to Columbus Circle and meet the actors have a have a read through of like the opening lines and the closing pages of each play,
0: two hours to write the play
1: yeah, wow yeah uh, it 's amazing what um, a deadline and your fear will do (laughs) um my my most produced single most produced play is a a short play a 10-minute play basically that i wrote on the a-train um actually in about an hour and a half because it was the second time we did it and and um I had in my head that I was going to pull a two character play because mm-hmm. that's what I'd gotten the first time. I don't know why, <laughs> but I was sure I was going to get a two character thing and I had an, an idea for like, uh, you know, people breaking up on a train or something. And I got there and I pulled four characters. You know, I had three women, one man, and one of the women was pregnant and I just like froze. I <laughs> went into a cold panic oh. and, um, And so I spent a number of stops uh, coming down uh, the west side of Manhattan, just like I don't know what to do, I don't know what to do. Um, Finally, I you know I kind of got myself under control and got and got writing. Um, But you just basically
0: do they have to take place on a train?
1: Yeah, they're all set on the train as well. Okay,
0: all right, yeah.
1: And so it's basically it's about getting maybe the beginning of an idea and getting the pen moving, and then just kind of. It, it's improv writing. It's basically, you just have to kind of go. Um, and I ended up with a play. It was still kind of a, a breakup on the train, but it was friends breaking up and, but using the same kind of language as a couple, you know, a love affair breaking up might be, I actually came up with, came out with a much better piece than I would have gotten if I'd had two people. It probably would have been fairly ordinary, but I was able to kind of look at it in this much more absurdist context. And it's been done like a couple hundred times around the world. It's been <laughs> translated into French and, and Chinese and, and, and such. Um, and um, if, if
0: I were you, I'd never get off the train.
1: Well, I, you know, sometimes when I'm working on something and I get stuck I do. I go out and I get on the train and I ride out to like Coney Island or back or, you know, just kind of go randomly on the trains and write. Because you do, you get into a zone and you kind of don't notice uh, what's going on around you. I mean, people always ask us about the A-Train stuff like, oh, you you must be so inspired by what you're what's going on around you. And sometimes that comes in and influences you, but we tend to get on the trains when they're fairly empty at either end of the thing. Um, So you kind of have to be, have your idea and be writing about these people before it really fills up too much. But um, so we've done about, you know, 24 different versions of this some of those were we did a best of series that we did on 42nd street um a few years ago um and um so we've done it multiple times we we also rode the staten island ferry and did staten island ferry plays once oh, that's we, great. we do musicals on the train <laughs> um, we write the book to a musical going one way and out at far rockaway we meet composer lyricists and they ride the train back to 207 and get that time to write a couple of songs for the plays.
0: Oh, that, that's uh, great.
1: These are all done 24 hours later, fully produced, fully memorized. Um, wow. So it's, it's like theater without a net.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I, we would sometimes call it theatrical skydiving, but you have to sew your own parachute as you're falling.
0: <laughs> you work with the Dramatist Play Service, director of professional rights. What exactly are professional rights? And if I wanted to lease a play or uh, get the rights to a play, I guess I'd talk to you, wouldn't I?
1: Anytime you want to, you want to produce, perform, present uh, a play that's still under copyright, mm-hmm. you need to uh, get permission from from the author or their representative you know now most of our authors of course have have a primary agent we're basically a a secondary agent Um, you know on my tax forms I generally write down you know playwright slash theatrical agent (laughs) Um, and so anybody from like a high school or college They have to come to us when they want to do The Crucible, or you can't take it with you. They say, you know, we'd like to do the play on these dates. We have this many performances, this uh, seating capacity of our theater and ticket prices. And they pay a per-performance royalty fee. So high schools, colleges, community theaters, these are all, you know, amateur groups. They fall under what we call non-professional rights. Okay. Showcases in New York or the 99-seat theater plan in Los Angeles, some of the member equity membership code things are all considered non-professional. The, the actors may be part of equity and part of a union, but they're not really getting paid or they're getting gas money or subway fare. Sure, or yeah. We don't really consider a group quote, professional until the actors are getting, you know, at least $150 a week or more. Working at
0: this particular job and also being a playwright, director, actor, producer, that sort of thing, um, has it changed what you do on your end, on the writing end? I mean, it's working with the business side of this. Has it affected your, in any way, your creativity, how you see things, um, your purpose for writing?
1: Um, yeah, to a degree. Sure. I mean, like I said, I try to, um, I try to approach things where I, I write the story that I'm, I'm currently interested in and I try to be true to what that story needs. Um, but I certainly go back to the things that I, uh, know um, you know, as I said, with months on end, that you know, oh. 10 people is kind of a large cast. Um, but my, the, the play, the new play that I'm working on now, "The Poles of Inaccessibility," was partly inspired by some of the questions that I get a lot um, here at, at dramatists, where um, uh, f- especially from high schools and such, where they have a lot of girls that come out and try out for parts. Yeah. and and fewer boys so they're generally looking for uh, plays that are more female heavy um, and have large casts but the plays uh, that have large casts tended to be written you know in the 30s, the 40s the 50s etc and yeah. mostly feature male roles so I'll get questions a lot for example you know uh, Arsenic and Old Lace has two or three police officers that come in uh, towards the end of the play and they're identified in the script as male. Right. Um, but today currently, you know, we obviously have a lot of, uh, female police officers as well as male. So they will ask me a lot of times, you know, can these parts be, be played by females, you know, and I'll go back to the, the author or the estate in a case like arsenic and old lace and, and find out if, if that sort of thing is possible. Um, so those are very understandable cases, you know. We right. also have other cases where people, you know, want to uh, do Steel Magnolias with, with all men, which the author doesn't doesn't allow. Or uh, mm. there was a case this spring where somebody, without asking, uh, did uh, David Mamet's Oleana, where they cast the part of the young female student with a, 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 a guy. Um, so... Knowing that there are those pressures and that, you know, I have always been pretty open with um, my casting in terms of race or ethnicity. I've always kind of uh, blankly stated in an author's note at the beginning of the play, you know, feel free to um, cast this in in any sort of way like that. And so I, I I, I had this idea for polls of inaccessibility, which I was already starting to put together in my head and i suddenly thought because of i had such a spate of these questions this past spring well, what if i were to do gender blind uh characters as well sure um so all of the characters have kind of gender neutral names and uh i'm just going to encourage any group that wants to do it to cast it however they want
0: they're not all named pat are they (laughs)
1: No, no, but there is a Pat. (laughs) Aunt Pat or Uncle Pat, if you want to do it that way. Or Aunt Pat, but played by a guy in drag, which I also think would be funny. You know, I had to choose a gender for the characters while I was writing them. At some point, you can't just keep saying, you know, Dylan picks up Dylan's hat and puts it on Dylan's head. You need some pronouns in there. (laughs) So I, I chose, you know, genders for the characters, but can easily see, you know, somebody doing it that way somebody reversing the genders or some, you know, doing two guys, two women. I could go to a show of this somewhere sometime and see this play done in any, any new production could be a completely different combination from what I'd seen before. So True. It's kind of exciting on yeah. that side.
0: Are, are you familiar with the, there's a, a trend going around now for gender neutral pronouns? I
1: hadn't, I hadn't heard that. I'd read something about, uh, One of the Scandinavian countries trying it. I want to say I think it was Sweden, you know, was trying to create a gender-neutral pronoun.
0: Some folks are using that here. It's it's
1: slow going. From what about? Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, it it uh, it has its feasibility for exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, but it's a question of how many other people would know that they might just think the whole book was full of typos. (laughs) What You and I met a bunch of years ago at the last Frontier Theater Conference where you were on mm-hmm. the panel for one of my plays, I believe it was Oatmeal and a Cigarette. So you've been there five years. Uh, tell us what that involves, and you've been teaching there also.
1: Yeah, well, um, most of the they, – they bring in uh, – at the last Frontier Theater Conference in, in Valdez, Alaska um, – they bring in um, playwrights who submitted work, as you would have, right. uh, from all over the country and and sometimes uh, outside of the country. Um, to they send in new works, and you know if those are selected, they will be read as, as stage readings as part of the the week long conference. And then they they bring in actors. Uh, you know they have some local Alaskan. Artists that they use, and they also bring in actors from New York and from Los Angeles heavily sure. um, and then they bring in what they call their featured artists, which is what i've been doing and they and they mostly playwrights but also directors and some scenic designers and dramaturgs and such and these what we do is we um we we are panelists on on the plays as they're being reading uh, for the readings and there's uh you know there can be four or five uh panels or different readings that are taking place every day sure um, yeah. and so we sit in on these we hear the readings and then we uh will go up right afterwards and and give some of our thoughts and and feedback both positive and, and more critical now, now, um, now,
0: now you get the plays a month or so or weeks beforehand you're not just hearing them right there
1: well, it's both. I mean, you could, you could read them all in advance uh, if you really had a lot of time. Um, we also, so we, we see a lot more plays. We see, say, I think this last year I, I was a panelist on 14 or 15 new plays. I was wow. what, what we call the key panelist or the lead panelist on four. Um, That's a lot of so, work to sift through they 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 increased they kind of lowered the number of uh featured artists that they'd had from previous years right. um, I think the 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 overall play count may have gone down a little too um so i the last couple of uh summers have have been have had a heavier uh workload uh, what I do and what I think most most of the featured artists do is we we read ahead of time the plays where we're the key panelist and and we have a we generally have a half hour to an hour one-on-one session with those writers individually aside from the the feedback that we give right. after the reading the plays that i'm just that i'm giving feedback on but i'm not the key panelist on i just i just see them and 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 Take notes as as it's going on, and then we also generally each of us teaches a, our own workshop, which can vary. You know, the playwrights are obviously doing. What uh, have you been teaching? Doing. What I have done is I've kind of gone back and forth. I've I've done workshops on the business of being a playwright from having worked at D P S for so long, sure. And yes. then I often uh, I often do ten minute or short playwriting workshops, largely born from having written a lot and, and also from having done the A-Train so many right, times. Right, right. Um, I've got quite a lot of short, you know, 10 to 15-minute plays that I've done. I've uh, been a, a part of a number of different short play festivals. So, in fact, even from from uh, people I've met at the last Frontier Theater Conference, I've written some pieces for them. So uh, I've done a lot of them. I've thought about them a lot. I, you know, I think I've come up with, you know, my own... Uh, philosophy of them, I guess. And so, you know, I'll, I'll talk about the structure of them, what I see, you know, their strengths and and weaknesses are what we can take from writing a short play and translate into uh, longer works. And, uh, and then we do some writing exercises. So that's kind of
0: New play, Poles of Inaccessibility. Just had a reading at the Road Theater in L.A. hmm And I'm guessing from everything we've talked about, you're still kind of at work on it. Uh, yeah. How'd the reading go? And uh, what'd you learn about it?
1: Um, well, the reading the reading went really well. Um, it's, a, it's a comedy. It's kind of a comic fantasy, as I call it. I was... Um, inspired by the idea of well a couple of things one is it's sort of got the shape of a uh, of like an epic journey you know like you might find uh, in from the odyssey or the iliad okay. um and i was inspired by uh, last summer the purple rose theater company had contacted me and asked me if i'd write uh, a short piece for them <laughs> for a short comedy festival that, that they were doing um and so I was, you know, looking for some different inspirations and ideas, and I came across this reference on the Internet to these places called the Poles of Inaccessibility, which are basically it's the geographical center of any continent. So, for instance, the, the North American Pole of Inaccessibility is, is, is out in South Dakota in the Badlands. Um, mm. So they tend to be, you know, fairly remote I mean maybe South Dakota isn't quite as remote as some, but um, they tend to be fa- fairly remote, and um, it just struck me as a such a grandiose kind of name
0: <laughs> for, yeah. for, for these
1: for these spots um they aren't poles obviously we don't revolve around them or anything you know um but there are there are eight of them there's one on each continent there's you know there's a northern pole in the arctic ocean there's an oceanic pole which is way out in, in uh the south pacific it, you know it's basically the the point that's like furthest from all land if you were to kind of draw so this
0: big these are all man-made out. geographical constructs
1: yes all right yes. Exactly. Um, but what really caught my attention was the the one in Antarctica, um, which is really got to be the most remote place. It's harder to get to than, say, the South Pole. It's actually because of the way the continent is shaped and everything right. further away from from the nearest shoreline than the South Pole is. But the funny thing is that in the late 50s, um, the Russians decided to set up a scientific base there, and they Drove out in these tractors with big huts that they set up this base on. They stayed for about a, a week before they left, eight days, and then they left. But on top of one of these huts that they took and left there was a a large um, bust carved, you know, bust of Lenin. <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> and you know, ac- okay. it's actually it's not it's actually made of uh, like some plexiglass or fiberglass, rather, or something. Um, but they left it there on top of this, on top of, you know, so it's standing on a pedestal on top of one of these huts. And in, in 2007 or 2008, um, somebody mounted one of these uh, expeditions where they decided to kind of ski, cross-country ski, all the way across Antarctica
0: okay. um,
1: in a straight line sort of thing. And they... They plotted their course, so they went through the Antarctic Pole of inaccessibility. And so in the intervening 50, 60 years, um, it had snowed a few times. Uh, <laughs> and probably, the snow had yeah. drifted. Of course, nothing melts. So the the huts are now completely buried in the snow. But the bust of Lenin is still above and visible.
0: So there's nothing for miles around, except this there's nothing bust for miles of around. Vladimir Ilyich Lenin sticking up above. Exactly. I love the set already.
1: I know. And as soon as I saw that, this picture of it, I was like, Oh my God, I have to write something about this place. Um, and I, 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 initially tried it as, as a short play for, um, for Purple Rose. Yeah, um, but it didn't work, and and it, it just wasn't enough. It wasn't enough time to spend with the place. You know, it takes a while to just kind of describe what these places are and what right. they mean, sure. and 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 such. And I knew I I had kind of a bigger story somehow that I I wanted to tell. Um, I also had to find kind of a different, uh, you know. Uh, it couldn 't just be about the fact that there 's a bust of Lenin somewhere. you know right. I had to have a story that made sense to go there um, and so what I created was this story, this as I say, this kind of comic epic journey, where these characters. Uh, set out on a new expedition uh, of exploration to go to all of the poles of inaccessibility. The other thing I knew was that I wanted I wanted Lennon to, he's got to come alive, he's got to talk, <laughs> you know, he's got and so I had to kind of create the reasons why there would be, you know, this, why there would be magic in the world and how I could You, you know, can't
0: pass of. up a character casting like that
1: Exactly, exactly and it would be much easier for a theater to find somebody and and make him up to look like Lennon and stick him on the stage behind a podium rather than, you know, find an actual bust of Lennon right. somewhere. <laughs> so um, for, for that, for a variety of reasons, you know, I knew that there were things like that that I, that I had to, to get to. Um, and so I looked, up, um, I looked up Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey, Mm-hmm. You know, and, and found the, the various uh, important moments along, along that kind of archetype of a journey right um, and uh, used, used that that was great as a kind of a skeleton that I could kind of look at and go, okay, well, here's where we go to the North American one. Here's where we go to the African pole. And, you know, and I started to kind of fill in the ideas of what would happen at these points. And it also helped me kind of flesh out ideas, you know, like magic growing in the world and these yeah. things. So it's been really fun and exciting to write. Um, and uh, Might
0: make a great uh, video for your next project.
1: Well, maybe. <laughs> Give us your website. My website is uh, craigpospasil dot com, and I will spell that <laughs> Craig C R A I G, pospasil P is in Peter, O S is in Sam, P is in Peter again, I S I L dot com. That's all is one word, and I update that with. Uh, uh, updates about, you know, what's going on. There's something about my the January film up there right now. Uh, a bio, you know, a list of some productions, you know.
0: Everything we need pictures. to know about you. Yeah.
1: Everything you need to know about me, including uh, my lovely wife and my French cat.
0: <laughs> Sounds good. Craig, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. And you. It's
1: uh, sure. been great.